1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. This is our group learning program where we meet each Sunday and Wednesday to share the teachings of the Buddha with you. Today, we're in chapter 23 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. And now that we've been doing this program for so many months, and students have had an opportunity to deeply understand the teachings and build their practice more and more, this is an excellent time to share with you the symbolism of the teachings, Reminders Through Imagery. That's the title of this chapter. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, he taught orally. Everything that he taught, it was all oral. And people were trained to be able to remember his teachings word for word for word. If you can imagine a discourse 30 minutes or an hour, or however long he would speak during one discourse. There were people that could remember his teachings word for word for word, exactly the way he said it. Because as the mind trains in these teachings more and more, the mind becomes more clear, it becomes more focused. You gain this deep memorization and the ability to concentrate and recall things that you've been involved in. So there were people throughout his lifetime that were able to remember his teachings word for word for word. And this is how they were passed down during his lifetime. But then also after he died, people continued to share the teachings through reciting exactly his discourses word for word for word. But then at some point, they ended up writing the teachings down. And that's what we call the canon, which is what we ultimately arrive to where we now understand his teachings in written format. But during his lifetime, through this oral tradition, people still needed to be reminded of the teachings in one way or another. So they use symbolism, they use imagery in order to remind people because the teachings weren't written down and people couldn't just open a book, they couldn't open a website, they couldn't watch a YouTube video or listen to a podcast like we can today. They instead had to be involved in the teachings each time he delivered his discourses. But then having deeply learned and understood the teachings, when they would go into various venues and they saw a certain symbol that would remind them of the discourse that they already learned. So now that you've learned a good amount of the Buddhist teachings through this program, I can share some of this symbolism with you because this symbolism is still around today. If you go into Buddhist temples or if you see Buddhist art or you just even are looking on the internet, you'll see a lot of this symbolism. And with your knowledge of the Buddhist teachings already, when I share these symbols with you and I explain them to you through his teachings, then as you embark in going into Buddhist temples or you're seeing Buddhist artwork or whatever, it will recall the teachings for you really easily, really quickly. It's kind of like a real quick snapshot to bring forward the teachings that you already know. So you'll see that as we go through today And as we always do, you're welcome to ask questions as we go, I'll display the symbols on the screen so that you'll be able to see the symbols and then I'll discuss them. And then as you have questions for each symbol, I'll accept questions like we normally do through Facebook, YouTube, and Zoom. You can just put your question in the comment section and you'll be able to have your question asked by a moderator. But if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow up questions you have there. If you're listening to this on the podcast, there's no ability to be able to show you these images through the podcast, but if you download the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, and look at chapter 23, you can follow along on the podcast and see the images that I'm teaching about because these same images appear in the book as well. So thank you all for joining today's class. Let's go ahead and move into looking at this first image that is a very common one that you will see throughout the Buddhist world. You'll see this in artwork, you'll see this on statues, you'll see this in temples. There's even some people that will have this tattooed on their body in some place. Oftentimes this image shows up on Buddhist statues at the third eye, which is between the eyebrows, right in the middle of the forehead. You also see this at different places in books or in Thailand, they have these fans that the monks will hold while they're chanting. You'll see the images on there. You'll see them in lots of different places. This one in the center is the one that I'm going to be talking about specifically because this is the most common one. The ones on the sides are kind of derivatives because there's no permanence, right? So even this symbol that I'm going to teach you about, there's derivatives of that. The symbol that we're looking at is to remind you of the path to enlightenment and the ability to attain enlightenment. Encapsulated in this image is essentially the journey that you will experience on your way to enlightenment. This image that we're looking at, it starts in the middle of that circle. So that circle towards the bottom where you see that little point, that's kind of like the start of your very first existence millions and millions and millions of years ago and essentially what we've all been experiencing is this constant rounds of rebirth that circle that you're seeing is the constant round of being born over and over and over again in this continuous circle and as you see the line there is very wide and very broad there's a lot of darkness because in those early births you didn't understand the teachings. You didn't have the ability, probably. You might have been born in the animal world or in other realms, and you didn't have access to these teachings. The world was very dark. There's this wide line where you don't really know what the path to enlightenment is. And that's why it's very broad. But then at some point, you end up in a human birth. And as you do, and you get closer and closer to these teachings, You notice that the path narrows, that it goes from this thicker, wider line, and it becomes narrower and narrower, where you start narrowing in on the path to enlightenment and understanding these teachings, and you're walking forward. But as you're walking forward, notice how it loops backwards, that you will be walking forward and progressing on the path, and you'll think that you're making a lot of progress, and then something will happen, and it's like, boom, you take a couple of steps back. So you might take 10 steps forward and three back or four steps forward and one back. And that's that backwards loop coming back. And then you start progressing forward again. And then something happens and you take another backwards couple of steps and loop around. But as you notice, it's getting narrower and narrower as it's working up towards the top. The line itself is getting narrower, but also the image is consolidating on itself as the mind narrows in closer and closer to what the path to enlightenment is but there's always these forward steps and then there's these backward steps that we think we're going forward and we are going forward but then we take these backward steps but notice even with the backward steps there's still this forward progress so that's what you have to always remind yourself is when you feel like you're stuck in a rut or you feel like you've taken a few steps forward and now you've taken steps backwards, just always remember, you are making forward progress. You're not back where you started from. You're not back down here in this lower realms, you know, stuck in this darkness. You are making forward progress. It's just that you're taking 10 steps forward and maybe two back. But as you go, it narrows in closer and closer and closer until eventually you get to this upper part of the image where it eventually becomes so narrow, the line actually starts to diminish and fade away to non-existence where there is no longer any rebirth. So this is a symbol that is often referred to as the Na or the symbol of enlightenment. And you'll see this one very commonly throughout Buddhist art, Buddhist temples, and various imagery that you'll see around Buddhist communities. And then there'll be different derivatives as well, like the ones you see on the left and the right. These are just ones that I pulled off on the internet. I've never actually seen these out in Buddhist communities, but I knew these were out there, so I brought them off the internet. But here you can see... They're a little bit different, but they kind of follow the same pattern where the image narrows in closer and closer until eventually the mind understands these teachings and then boom up to enlightenment where the mind experiences its higher consciousness and experiences the enlightened mind where it's peaceful, calm, serene content with joy permanently, no longer experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever. So let's pause here and see what questions you guys have on this particular image. And we can discuss this one and then move on to the next one as well.
2: Hi, David. I had a question about this image and also the images in general we're going to be looking at. You mentioned in the book that if an individual had learned the teachings with the Buddha in detail, then upon viewing certain images, they could be instantly reminded of the teachings, helping to further soak the teachings into the mind. So I was wondering, is this a recommended use of the images today? Is it helpful to have the images potentially around us to give us that instant reminder?
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, all too often people who are on the path, we sometimes get really busy in life. You know, we need that little reminder to meditate. We need that little reminder that, hey, you're on the path. Hey, you're going to take some steps forward and you're going to take some steps backwards. This is part of the path. So if any imagery like this is really connecting with you and you feel that it's really helpful, you can screenshot any of this stuff. You can take it out of the book. You can get it off the internet. You can print it out. And like if you have a mirror in your house that you look at every day and you would like to just remind yourself of this image, taking a few steps forward and taking some back, and that's going to help motivate your practice and encourage you and help you along, then go for it. Or if you would like to put this on your refrigerator in your kitchen, just to remind you that that's a place where you maybe have a lot of discussions with your children or your life partner, and you just need to be reminded of enlightenment and helping you to remember to maybe practice right speech when you're in that kitchen with the people around you. So you can use these little reminders and kind of place them around your home or in your car or things like this. To just remind you to stay on top of the teachings. You'll see here in Thailand, if you uh, ever come here, like the taxi drivers and the bus drivers and people, just personal cars, they will have things hanging down from their mirror, like their rear view mirror. Little images of the Buddha. I've even seen some people that will put multiple statues of the Buddha on the dashboard of their car. And they'll have them Velcro down to (laughs) the top of their, their dashboard of their car. And this is just a way to remind them, like, okay, keep your mind calm, be patient, don't get angry when you're driving, you know, just stay calm and just kind of easy does it, you know, gradually driving. And you'll see these reminders all throughout Buddhist cultures. If you guys ever come here to Thailand, you'll see these images that I'm going to show you here and many more everywhere you go. Uh, You'll even see people that will name their businesses after certain Buddhist names or they'll name their children after certain Buddhist names. This stuff is everywhere when you're in a Buddhist society. So if you use it to help remind you to practice the teachings, soaking them into the mind and make it more easy for you to recall, then go for it. You can use any of these.
2: That's great to hear. I know this one in particular has been inspiring to me and I feel like we can all relate to that up and down nature yeah, you can
1: even make these like screen savers on your phone. You can make them wallpapers on your phone or on your computer. Places where you're looking regularly. I don't have my phone next to me, but I have a picture of Gotama Buddha, that one that you always see me using. I have that as the, the screen lock on my phone and as the wallpaper too. So whenever I lift up my phone, I'm just always seeing the Buddhist picture and it's just a constant reminder To practice the Buddhist teachings and the Eightfold Path because any kind of little thing you can use like that to help you is wonderful. I've heard from some students recently who were having trouble remembering to meditate. So they put a bracelet, they have a bracelet, like a beaded bracelet they put on their right wrist. And when they meditate, what they do is they move it from their right wrist to their left wrist to remind them like, oh, I've meditated one time today. And then when they meditate the second time, they move it from their left wrist over to the right wrist. And this is just like a constant reminder throughout their day when they see the little bracelet to remember to fit in meditation during their day. And then I imagine when they're out and about at work or at the grocery store or what have you, and they see that bracelet, it's a reminder of you know, eliminating craving, desire, attachment, to eliminate anger, hatred, ill will, to practice right speech and right action and all those other teachings as well. So you can use these kind of things. Just don't get attached to them, right? Where someday it would be good for you to not wear that bracelet. But if for a year or two or whatever you need that, and that's what really kind of jumpstarts your practice to get you in the habit of meditating and practicing these teachings, then go for it. I, at one time, used to have all kinds of Buddhist statues around me, and I would wear these little string bracelets and different things. I had all this kind of stuff around me at one point, and then over time, I let it all go, and it phased out And where I didn't need those things. But they can be really good reminders for
2: you. Thank you, David. Let's go to Gloria now. We have her hand raised. Yeah,
3: so my question is... um the picture is beautiful. I, I'm always very attracted to these pictures. And so my question is, um, so as per uh, my understanding is that uh, it's just the lives when uh, we uh, reborn. So in a life it's possible that we advance um, in our spirituality But also, it's possible that in the same life, we will go backwards.
1: Once you're learning, Gloria, so for example, like the first time you learned the Eightfold Path with me, and you learned, for example, right speech and right action, I'm sure that you agreed like, wow, this is great teachings from the Buddha. Like this would truly improve my life. And you learned it, but then when you start practicing it, you're not practicing it to perfection because you can't. You're going to, through trial and error, develop your practice and you're going to be walking forward and you're going to maybe be talking with your sister very politely, very kindly, and everything goes wonderful. But then when you talk with maybe your son, you have difficulties talking with the five factors of well-spoken speech, for example, and you might get angry or frustrated. You might even maybe hit your your son, right? And this can make the mind feel lost and feel like, wow, you know, I'm not as far along this path as I want to be. And the mind can get very disgruntled and irritated and feeling guilty and shameful that you're not practicing the teachings to the level of degree that you want to practice them because there's this craving, desire, attachment to be perfect when in reality you can't be perfect in just a few months. You can't just click your fingers and practice the Eightfold Path to Perfection. So as you're learning this path, let's just say like Gautama Buddha, it took him six years to attain enlightenment. Well, even in his practice, he took many steps forward in that life, and then he took a few steps back, and then he took a few steps forward, and then he took a few steps back. But in that particular life, he created enough forward progression by staying dedicated and consistent and diligent to his practice that he ultimately attained enlightenment. So every being that attains enlightenment, it's not like you start the path and then you know, boom, straight up to enlightenment. There's going to be this winding, weaving path where you're gonna take some steps forward and you're gonna take some steps backwards. This is part of the path to enlightenment that you can't just have this upward trajectory. There's going to be some times where you don't practice right speech and you don't practice right action. And your mind does become hateful, and this is part of your learning along this path. And what I think this image really helps you to understand is that that backwards steps is part of the path. But if you can see this image that that backwards steps is part of the forward progression, then you can keep the mind focused on the forward progression and not be so lost or empty or feeling guilty or shameful just because you've taken some steps backwards but you can see the forward progression.
2: And to clarify, David, this is representing all of our lives rather than just the life we're currently living, essentially.
1: Right, this represents your entire path to enlightenment. So this life that you're having right now, while you guys have all decided to become part of the path to enlightenment and and start actively pursuing the path to enlightenment, in reality, all your previous lives You've been on this path, you just weren't actively on the path as you are now. So when we were snakes and we were elephants and we were uh, lizards and monkeys and afflicted spirits and in the, all these other different realms, we were being affected by the natural law of gamma. We had this whole stream of existences. We were being affected by this natural law of gamma, So we were constantly being reborn over and over and over and over and over again But it's not until you get on the path, actively learning and practicing that you're going to see that forward progression all the way up to enlightenment. But for me, looking back and seeing these past lives, I know that even in those lives, I was still pursuing the path to enlightenment, just not as closely and making the same amount of progress that I have in this particular life. So you can envision this symbol as being all your lives. And essentially that circle at the bottom is when you were constantly being reborn over and over and over again. And once it starts moving off to the right and makes that loop, that's where you're starting to actively practice the path to enlightenment. And now you're truly making forward progress as it becomes narrower and narrower and working your way up to enlightenment. So this image can remind you of the path to enlightenment, that it is going to include multiple rebirths, being reborn over and over and over again, and it's going to involve these backward steps. But as long as you stay committed and dedicated and diligent, it will narrow. This path will narrow and it'll become more and more clear to you what is the path to enlightenment and how to practice it in order to attain enlightenment.
2: Thank you, David. That's all we have for now.
1: Okay, this next one we call the Dhamma wheel. Dhamma means the teachings. That's the Pali word. You might even heard the word Dharma, but Dhamma is the Pali word. So people usually refer to this one as the Dhamma wheel. What this one is, is this has a lot of different symbolism in it. If you notice, there's eight spokes. Okay, whenever you see eight in Buddhist imagery, it's referring to the Eightfold Path. Whenever you see three, it's refers to the Buddha, his teachings and the community, okay? So here, this Dhamma wheel, the eight spokes, it's reminding you of the Eightfold Path. So when you walk into Buddhist communities or you see Buddhist artwork, you're probably gonna see this Dhamma wheel because the Eightfold Path is such a central teaching to the Buddha's path to enlightenment that this Dhamma wheel shows up in a lot of different places And people during his lifetime who would have learned the Eightfold Path with him orally, then when they were moving about their day, if they would have saw this symbol hanging on a tree or at a temple or somewhere else, it would have helped them recall the Eightfold Path and to remember to practice the Eightfold Path. So you guys know, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration are represented by each individual spoke. The one at the very top, at the 12 o'clock position, that's right concentration. That's the the top of the path. The one that's at about two o'clock position, that one is right view. And then the three o'clock position is right intention, and then it goes around, as you guys know, the different steps. The circle itself represents the cycle of rebirth. So not only does this symbol remind you of the Eightfold Path, but it reminds you of the cycle of rebirth, because it's the Eightfold Path that is the escape from the cycle of rebirth. So you've got this wheel, this circle, reminding you of the cycle of rebirth, and you've got the spokes reminding you that this is the escape from discontentedness, the escape to attain enlightenment. And you will often see this Dhamma wheel placed behind the head of a Buddha. So if there's a Buddha statue, they will oftentimes place this one behind it. I don't know if you can see where I'm standing. There's a Buddha statue behind me and there's a Dhamma wheel behind the head of a Buddha. The reason why is because not only does this symbol take on the importance that I've just described, which is reminding you of the cycle of rebirth and reminding you that the Eightfold Path is the way to escape that, but also the symbol of this Dhamma Wheel is something that a Buddha would turn upon their awakening. When a Buddha awakens, they will turn this Dhamma Wheel. And this is a symbol of civilizations taking a step forward a major step forward because once a buddha arises and awakens in the world now there's the potential for many 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 beings to learn and practice the teachings to attain enlightenment so there's this symbolism that's embedded in the image but then there's also the turning of the dhamma wheel and each time a buddha awakens It's one turn of the Dhamma wheel. A Buddha knows where this wheel is. Essentially, it's at the top of the head. It's the crown of the head where the back of the skull comes up and the top of the skull meets. There's a flat spot on the top of a Buddha's head. And when they awaken to enlightenment, they will take their hand and they will turn this wheel counterclockwise at the crown of their head and turning it around counterclockwise as a way of symbolizing civilization taking this major step forward now that a Buddha has awakened in the world. And now it's the responsibility of the Buddha to share the teachings in the world in such a way that countless people can attain enlightenment during their life. And then it's the Buddha's responsibility to leave the teachings in a condition that after their death, Countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death. And this would represent a major step forward for civilization to be able to have access to a Buddha and to the clarity and crispness of a Buddhist teachings. So that's the symbolism that you'll see here reminding you of the cycle of rebirth, reminding you of the Eightfold Path is the escape from the cycle of rebirth to eliminate discontentedness, reminding us that. There's been this major step forward with the awakening of Gautama Buddha that he turned this Dhamma wheel, brought the teachings into the world, and allowed these teachings to be shared in such a way that countless people could attain enlightenment. And any Buddha that awakens today would know that this Dhamma wheel is on the top of the head and that it moves counterclockwise and to turn it upon their awakening. So I'll go ahead and see what questions you guys have on this one. Is there any symbolism
2: in the fact that this is a circle, that each of the parts of the eightfold path are equal essentially?
1: Uh, You could look at it that way. Yeah, you could potentially look at it that way. Because I see the steps as being mutually important and there's no one step that's necessarily more important than the other because without every single step, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. So if you just take one step out of the Eightfold Path, it's not complete anymore. So you would need all the eight steps. And this is where I explain that there's this importance of meditation, which is right concentration, right? That's part of the Eightfold Path. Meditation is part of right concentration. But some people think that you can just meditate your way to enlightenment and that's all it takes but that's just one component of this entire Eightfold Path. You wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment with just meditation alone, but you also wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment without meditation either. So each one of these steps on the Eightfold Path are mutually beneficial and important. Without all of the eight, you wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment. Just taking one out, you wouldn't be able to actually understand deeply enough to be able to progress to enlightenment. So you could see it that way, James, that they're all mutually significant and equally important.
2: Okay, let's go to Basim now for our Zoom questions. Thanks, James. We have a question from Donnie. He asks,
3: does the center pattern mean anything?
2: You'll see
1: in the center pattern, you'll see different things, depending, because as you know, the universal truth of impermanence. So you will see people shape this different ways, the center, as well as the entire wheel itself. You'll see different versions of it. So different communities might put something unique there in the center in order to represent different things. So I can't really see what this one is in particular, but some of them have some significance. If you look at it, there could be maybe an image of a Buddha or You'll see in a moment, I'm going to show uh, towards the end, a leaf. Uh, some You might see a leaf in there, or you might see other different symbols that take on certain importance. Typically artists and people who make these kind of things, there's an importance to every single little thing that they put in their artwork, whether it's a statue or a painting or something else. But I don't know these particular ones, if there's any importance or what that symbolizes but there typically is because an artist usually is really connected with ensuring that their art is communicating some message.
3: Thanks teacher, no more questions for now.
1: Okay, let's move on to the next one. The next one is a lotus flower. This one has a lot of symbolism to it and you'll see this one used pervasively across Buddhist communities. A lotus flower, depending on the stage of its development has different meaning. So if you see a closed lotus flower, like you see the one on the top where it's completely closed, it hasn't bloomed yet, this is to remind you of your potential to attain enlightenment. Just like every flower has the potential to bloom, a closed lotus flower is reminding you that you have the potential to bloom because attaining enlightenment is like blooming, right? So when you see a closed lotus flower, it should remind you ah i have the potential to attain enlightenment in this life if you see a open lotus flower like the one on the bottom this represents the attainment of enlightenment so oftentimes you'll see a buddhist statue that will be placed on top of a lotus flower so there'll be a bloomed lotus flower and then there'll be the statue of the buddha on top of that because he's attained enlightenment so the open lotus flower representing the attainment of enlightenment and placing his statue on top of it would represent like, okay, this person is enlightened. The reason why we use a lotus flower is because of the way it grows. It represents the things that you're experiencing along this path. Lotus flowers grow typically in very murky ponds. The earth of the pond is very murky, very muddy. And the roots of the lotus flower go deep down into the murky earth. The murky earth is like all the darkness in the world and the roots are like the craving desire attachment digging down into the murky earth. So this is symbolizing craving desire attachment, how the mind is grasping to the earth and trying to hold on to this existence and this craving-desire attachment is keeping it bound into this cycle of rebirth. But then the lotus flower starts to grow, and eventually it rises up above the murky water because the murky water is like the darkness of life, the misery, the despair, and the flower starts to grow through that murky water. It comes up over the water with this nice strong stem, it's in that bud and then eventually it blooms. And once it blooms, it's got this nice strong stalk that is supporting the bloom. That nice strong stalk is your life practice. That's what supports the blooming. Without that strong stalk, then the flower wouldn't ever bloom. So just like the mind is stuck down in the mud, the roots grabbing onto the earth, gripping and holding with craving, desire, attachment, you can rise above that you can rise above this murkiness and the way that you do that is with a nice strong life practice just like the strong stem that rises the flower up above the murky water and ultimately blooms it's your life practice which is that strong stalk that helps you move through the murkiness of this world and eventually allows the mind to bloom over time and that's a slow process of gradually growing a lotus flower. It's not a real quick thing, it's a gradual process. So let's see what questions you guys have on this.
2: We have no questions at this time, David.
1: Okay, so let's move to the next one. This is something that I'm showing you that is a combination. I did not create this, I saw it on the internet, but this is where with the previous definitions that I gave you, you can actually understand this symbol. So even though nobody ever explained this to me, even though I've never actually seen it other than the internet, I can look at this symbol and I know exactly what it means. Because there's the combination of two things here. You've got the symbol of enlightenment where there's this circle representing the cycle of rebirth. The path to enlightenment moving forward, taking steps back, moving forward, taking steps back, narrowing in closer and closer and closer. And then eventually you get the lotus flower at the top so this is an artistic rendition of putting multiple symbols together to represent the symbol of enlightenment so you'll see sometimes artists who will embellish things and they'll use their creative expressions as a way of putting different symbols together and you'll see this as you go around in the buddhist communities different artwork different symbols and this can be really fun when you come to a place like Thailand and even in places like America, the UK, Australia, there's lots of temples nowadays in the world. You can go into these temples and you can see all the various architecture and artwork, and you can kind of decode the significance of the artwork that you're seeing. Here in Thailand, we've got temples anywhere from 700 to 1,000 years old. So people constructed these temples, they put artwork in them, And now it's kind of like decoding what people a thousand years ago were trying to share with us about what they understood of the teachings. And you understanding the teachings today, you can look at symbols that were created a thousand years ago and you can know exactly what they were trying to share. Whether it's a Dhamma wheel talking about the Eightfold Path and the cycle of rebirth and so forth, or whether it's a symbol like this. And even temples in places like America, the UK, Australia, that have maybe only been built in the last 50 years, they also will have symbolism like this around that you can go in and you can kind of tour the temple and it becomes a very fun thing to do. Here in Thailand, it's almost like a family activity that on the weekends when COVID's not around, you will see massive numbers of Thai people as families traveling around to different regions of the country, and they will just be going in and out of these temples and kind of looking at the artwork, looking at the architecture, talking to the monks, talking to each other, and really enjoying these temples that they've built over the course of many generations. People have donated land, people have donated money, people have donated supplies, people have donated their time to be able to construct the temples, and now Thailand's got what I've seen upwards of 40,000 temples, and the landmass of Thailand is actually smaller than Texas, so there's over 40,000 temples here. About 33,000 of them are active. There's some temples that are no longer active. So, if you can imagine going around and kind of touring each region of Thailand and each region has built these temples in different ways because of the unique culture of each individual region. So when you go around, you'll see different perspectives and different architecture, different artwork, and it's very different from place to place. There's They're not trying to create each temple to look exactly the same because they understand impermanence. I've never actually been in two temples that were exactly the same, ever. So every time you go to a temple, it's a unique experience And it's a very enjoyable experience that you can go with your friends or your family as an activity on the weekends or holidays. And it doesn't cost anything because the temples were already donated and built. And oftentimes Thai people will go in and make donations as they go in and out of the temples, but it's not required. You can just go in and look around and observe. This is something that people travel to Thailand specifically for this. People will travel around and look at temples and they'll make it part of their holiday here in thailand is to visit many temples in different regions and see the different artwork throughout the different regions of thailand so let's see what questions you guys have
2: let's go a nick who has his hand raised i was wondering with covid are the temples open for
1: visitors or just um less people visiting and going in yes here in chiang mai from what i see is the temples are open And I would imagine that they're probably open in other places as well because the temples serve as a a community center, but they also serve as almost like going back to the chapter we discussed last week as a mental health center. So when Thai people are struggling and they have uh, challenges in their family they will go visit the temples and talk to people who understand the Buddhist teachings in order to get help with their family situations. So where in places like America, we might go to family therapy or marriage counselors or things like that. In Thailand, they have this enormous support where the Thai people are providing offerings and donations to all of these practitioners who are learning and reflecting and practicing these teachings. And when they need help, they will go to the temples and get help. So right now, during COVID, I imagine with people dying, there's a lot of people who do need help to help them process that experience with the death. Also, it's the temples that take care of the body. When the body dies, they will have crematoriums inside the temples. So the bodies, when they die, will go off to the temple in order to get cremated. So I suspect that now the temples are open and serving the purpose of supporting the cremation of bodies, but also supporting the Thai people as they're having trouble with money or they're having trouble with their families or other issues throughout daily life. The ordained practitioners and teachers like me support our students as you're meeting challenges and difficulties in your life. That's what we're here for is for you to reach out. Let us know you're having challenges in your life and get help with teachings to help you move forward and practicing them closer and closer. So uh, I suspect that they're open, Nick. And I used to teach at a temple in the city and I was still teaching there for a while, but I've recently stopped because COVID went up in Thailand. So I've stopped teaching there so that we don't have a large group of people collecting but that's not typically what you'll see at a temple. You won't typically see large groups of people unless they're holding some special event. Typically what it is, is just a place where the monks stay and they sleep there and they take care of the facility. And people can come and go out of the temple as they like. So if you're a Thai villager and you're having a trouble with your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife or your children, you would just mosey on down to the local temple, go find yourself a monk and sit down with them and say, hey, I'm having trouble with my son or my daughter or my wife or my husband. Here's the situation I'm having. Can you provide me some help that you can give me some teachings that will help me through this? So I suspect that the ties are keeping their temples open but they're just not having these large events that we used to have before COVID. Okay. And at the beginning of the pandemic,
2: were, were they closed?
1: I don't know that the temples closed ever. I haven't heard of the temples closing because there's still going to be monks that are living there and those monks are serving a purpose as part of the community to provide help and support to the people. So I can't see the Thai government asking the temples to close because they know that they play such a vital role in supporting society and supporting the people.
2: Okay, thank you, Teacher David.
1: Yeah, I haven't heard of any temples closing.
2: I was wondering, David, for any students who may be artistically inclined, is creating artwork with the symbols and creating artwork inspired by the teachings, is that a recommended way of really exploring the teachings further?
1: Sure, if you're into artwork and doing some artwork, this would be lovely. I mean, I think this is even great for children a little activity, you know, showing them a symbol like this, having them trace it out or having them draw something themselves or showing them a bunch of symbols and having them sit down for 30 minutes or an hour and kind of create their own symbols if they like. This is a great way to get them active and involved in whether it's children or adults to represent and express what we understand about the teachings. That's how we express ourselves, not just through speech, but through artwork as well.
2: Yes, I know Judith has shared some beautiful artwork before on Facebook, guys.
1: Indeed. Indeed, she makes some wonderful stuff.
2: Well, that's all the questions we have for now.
1: Okay, let's move to the next one. This is kind of an interesting story. Here you see a big snake at the base of stairs. A lot of these temples that are built here in Thailand and around the world, they will typically have these long stairs that will lead to... The actual temple and you'll see these big statues of these snakes at the base of the stairs the snakes themselves we call them in english we call them the king of the serpents or the naga king this is kind of like the highest being of the serpents and there's a story around this particular serpent that i will share with you I don't know that this story is necessarily true or false, but nonetheless, when I share this story with you, embedded in the story, there's a bit of the teachings of the Buddha that are embedded in it. I suspect this story isn't true, because as you hear the story that I share with you, there aren't beings that can do these kind of things today, and I don't think there were beings that could do these kind of things during the lifetime of the Buddha, but nonetheless, there's this kind of mythical folklore that gets handed down from generation to generation. And in some of these stories, you will hear the teachings of the Buddha if you understand what the teachings are. So let me share with you the story. And then at the end of the story, I will share with you the teachings that we can extrapolate that are part of the story. So the way the story goes is that during the lifetime of the Buddha, as he was teaching and he had these large collections of people that would come to learn with him, that there would be ordained practitioners and household practitioners that were all learning the teachings with the Buddha. And as the Buddha would teach, you know, he would teach for multiple hours at a time. And oftentimes the people in the audience would fall asleep. That isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Like we kind of see that as, oh, that would be disrespectful if you fell asleep during the talk of a teacher. But oftentimes when you're learning the teachings that awaken the mind, the mind is working so hard to try to understand the teachings, it can get very tired and the mind can actually fall asleep and people can doze off. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, the story is that there was this being who was in the animal realm, this king of the serpents that was so close to becoming human that he could transform himself to looking like a human being. And he was so interested in learning the Buddhist teachings and attaining enlightenment, he would transition from looking like a snake to looking like an ordained practitioner, wearing robes with a shaved head. And he would go into the discourses of the Buddha, and he would listen to the discourses right alongside the ordained practitioners. And nobody knew that he was a snake because he had transitioned himself to look like an ordained human being. And as the Buddha would teach more and more and more and people would kind of doze off, this being dozed off as well. And he dozed off and fell asleep and he lost his consciousness in his sleep and his body transformed back to the snake. And as different ordained practitioners were waking up around this being, they observed this large snake amongst them, and they got very scared and very afraid, and they ran to get the Buddha. The Buddha came over to see what was going on because an enlightened being, particularly a Buddha, but an enlightened being has no fear whatsoever. So he just calmly, patiently walked over, and he saw this snake there, and he woke up, And the buddha asked him like you know why are you here you know what are you doing you know the practitioners are being shaken up by your presence you know what's happening essentially and the snake says to the buddha that he's interested in attaining enlightenment and he really would like to learn the buddhist teachings and the buddha says you know well you're a snake you're in the animal realm you can't attain enlightenment in this existence it looks like you're close to becoming human and perhaps your next rebirth will be in the human realm and you can learn the teachings then and attain enlightenment then. But right now you are a animal and you're not able to attain enlightenment and you're disturbing the practitioners who are very scared. So I would like to you know, ask that you don't come into the talks because you're kind of creating this disruption and this fear. So the snake was respectful and agreed with the Buddha that it wouldn't be wise for him to come in and kind of shake up the crowd and being scared of him. So he said that what he would do is he would go outside and he would stand guard and he would guard against any evil doers who were going to come and do evil to the Buddha or to his teachings. So this is why we see these large statues at the base of the stairs of the temple. This is like the Naga King standing guard, not allowing any evil doers to come into the temple and do harm to the teachings of the Buddha. The idea is, is that when you go to a temple, you're going there with good intentions. You're going there with an interest to learn and participate. You're not there to do any harm to the Buddhist teachings. And the statue is there to remind you, as you're passing into the stairway and making your way up to the temple, that you should have good intentions and not being interested in causing any harm to the Buddhist teachings or anybody that's at the temple. This story, like I mentioned, whether there was a being that could actually transition themselves into being human or not, I don't think that's the case because there's no beings like that that are existing today. I think this is probably mythical folklore. But inside this story, you can see the teachings. You can see that the Buddha is talking about a being can only attain enlightenment in the human realm or the heavenly realm. In the animal existence, you can't attain enlightenment. So that's one major point in the story that, you know, when you see this snake at the base of the temple, you can remind yourself, thank goodness that I'm human. Thank goodness that I have the ability and the potential to attain enlightenment, because if I was an animal, I wouldn't be able to do that. The other reminder that you can see here is that it's important to eliminate fear, that there's no reason to fear, because even though this was a snake and The ordained practitioners who weren't enlightened got scared and fearful. The Buddha himself wasn't fearful because he knows he didn't do any harm. He hasn't been causing any harm. He hasn't caused any harm to this snake. So therefore, there's no harm that's going to come to him. So the Buddha felt perfectly comfortable to come talk to the snake and the serpent, where people who were unenlightened were scared and fearful and kind of ran away from the snake as part of the story. So this is part of the story. Another part that you can remember and use is the dedication and the commitment that this snake had that, okay, if you're not going to allow me to learn the teachings as being a snake, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to stand guard, right? He's committed. He's dedicated. He knows that it's the Buddhist teachings that lead to enlightenment, so he's dedicated to protect the teachings of the Buddha. So this is some of the story that you'll hear related to this particular statue. And when you see it, you can perhaps remember some of that to remind you about the lessons from this story. So let's see what questions you guys
2: have. So David, in regards to being grateful for our human existence, would you say that most of our past existences have been that other than human?
1: yes it's very rare to experience a human birth and for anybody who's alive today i would say the vast majority of us have been experiencing countless rebirths in all the other realms before we ever arrived to the human realm and this may or may not be your first human birth you may have had previous human births before this that you just don't recall at this time but for sure you've had countless animal existences Even the Buddha himself recounted countless animal existences that he had, as well as some human existences that he had as well. And he talks about the countless rebirths that we've all experienced as part of the animal realm. Because once you're in the lower realms of hell, animal, and afflicted spirits, those lower realms, it's very hard to get to the human realm or the heavenly realm. So you have almost like five, six, rebirths in those lower realms just to get one opportunity to get to a human rebirth. So anybody who's a human today would have had just, you know, countless animal rebirths and probably rebirths in the other lower realms as well before you ever make it to the human world. But from those animal rebirths, you can move from animal straight into human. You can move even from hell into human or even into heaven. You can move from the afflicted spirits realm into human and in heaven as well. There's no kind of a sequential ordering. You can move in and out of these realms at different ways, different times. From my experience, the vast majority of us have been reborn out of the animal realm. And there's surely some of us that have had previous human existences, but the vast majority of The human population has been reborn out of the animal realm. This is the reason why you see over the course of many generations the animal realm has shrunk. There's statistics that I've seen that 99 percent of all animals that once existed in the world are now extinct. So even though there's lots of animals that are still in this world, scientists say that represents only one percent of the animals that existed at one time in the world. And as the animal realm has shrunk and there's less and less beings, that's why we've also seen the human population expand. Our human population has been constantly growing at an exponential rate for several generations now. We're at the highest point of human population of 7.5 billion human beings. And the reason why there's been that explosion of humans is because there's this shrinking of animals. And then once a Buddha comes into the world and these teachings end up being shared wider and wider, you're going to see this shrinking of the human world and this expansion more of the animal realm. And you'll see more and more beings being reborn into heaven as well, and more and more beings escaping the cycle of rebirth. So eventually this whole cycle of rebirth will flush itself out, and more and more beings will attain enlightenment, and all of these realms will start to empty out.
2: I I was wondering, is there any inevitability of life itself ceasing to exist, because all of life comes enlightened?
1: Yes, you know, the Buddha never talked about that in detail, but the way that I understand it is that As these teachings spread throughout the world, and more and more people attain enlightenment, therefore there's not rebirth, that these realms essentially flush themselves out. So even right now, if you're human, and you were reborn back to the animal realm, for example, you will be reborn in those lower realms multiple times, but eventually you will make it back to the human realm with an opportunity to attain enlightenment again, because it's not permanent to be in hell or animal, or afflicted spirits, or in heaven either. So that's why putting in effort and energy to learn and practice the teachings now will result in more and more peacefulness in the mind, more and more joy and contentedness in the mind now. But if for some reason you fall short of attaining enlightenment in this life, it will improve your rebirth for your next life and improve your chances of attaining enlightenment in a future life. But even if you chose to not practice these teachings whatsoever. Or like, for example, people who aren't choosing to practice these teachings. Let's just say somebody who's a serial murderer, who goes around and murders uh, countless people and never, ever learns any of these teachings in their life. They're going to be reborn down into the lower realms, but eventually they will make it back to the human realm and they'll have opportunity to attain enlightenment during those subsequent births. And the way that I see it is these realms will ultimately empty themselves out and humanity will cease to exist because humanity is not permanent and animal realm is not permanent. These things aren't permanent. So all beings will flush out and these realms will flush out with more and more beings attaining enlightenment.
2: And in regards to the serpent and its role in taking the teachings from evil, is there any similar relevant role? that we have in protecting the teachings or anyone has in doing that today?
1: There's nothing that any one person can do to significantly deteriorate the teachings. And there's nothing that one person can necessarily do to bolster the teachings other than a Buddha himself. So you don't have to have an attachment or craving, desire, attachment to the teachings and feel like you have to protect them. But things that we can be doing as a community is ensuring that we're learning diligently with our own practice and that we're not attempting to change the teachings of the Buddha. Because once we start trying to change what he taught, then it's making the path more gray and more muddy for other people. So being a community who's very interested and cultivating the teachings in a way that we ourselves can attain enlightenment but also many beings after us we should be dedicated to learning and practicing what the buddha actually taught and then ensuring that when we share with others that we share what we know and what we experienced and if we don't know the answer just say i don't know the answer to that rather than allow the ego to come in and there be lying and degrading of the teachings, just say, I don't know the answer, but I know someone who does. I bet you I can get an answer from him. And then you reach out to me or other people that you know that know the answer, and you get the answer or send that person in the direction of your teacher to be able to get the answer for themselves. So the way that we can ensure the longevity of these teachings is to ensure that we're staying close to learning reflecting and practicing in the way that the buddha actually taught and that's why this book series that i wrote and all the classes that i teach i stick very close to what the buddha taught what i experienced what the students are observing is working for them and what the thai people say is yeah that's the teachings that we've been learning the people that are in our community who are enlightened monks or enlightened people, you're teaching the same thing that they're teaching. And that gives me the confidence in confirming those four different ways is one, everything that I teach is from the Pali Canon. I've investigated and experienced the results of what the Pali Canon talks about. When I teach, the students experience the results as well. And when Thai people talk to me and ask me, what are you teaching? And then I share it with them and they say, oh, that's what our enlightened teachers are teaching as well so you're teaching the same thing they're teaching so by confirming it those four ways you can ensure anything that i'm sharing is the truth but you still don't believe me you learn it you reflect on it and you practice it to see the truth for yourself and if we stay dedicated to that and maintaining the buddhist teachings in the way that he taught them during his lifetime Then when we share with our children and our children share with their children and it gets passed down for many generations from here, we can ensure that we're not protecting the teachings. I wouldn't use that word, but I would say we're ensuring the longevity of the teachings, that we're ensuring that we're doing the most diligent work during our lifetime to bring the teachings into the mind, practice them in the way that the Buddha taught them And then when we share them, share them in the way that we understand them based on the results that we've experienced and the truth that we're experiencing and being able to see the wisdom in the teachings. Because by staying true to what we're seeing as truth and what we're experiencing as the truth, then we know what we're handing down is that if I experience that doing loving kindness meditation in this way works, then if I teach it to you, it's going to work too. And if you teach it to your son or daughter or partner, it's going to work for them, too, rather than allowing any kind of ego to come in and be like, oh, let me change this or let me change that or let me modify this or modify that. As soon as we start trying to put our slant on things, that's where it takes the teachings off the path and it makes the path more muddled and more gray and more obscure, not as clear for people to see. So everything that I do is to Ensure that the teachings are rooted to what the Buddha taught during his lifetime because I know that's what produces enlightenment, not any kind of modifications along the way. So, the way to ensure the longevity of these teachings is that as you guys are learning them, don't try to modify them or adjust them in ways that are going to create more obscurity and lack clarity of what the true path is.
2: Thank you. That's all we
1: have for now. All right. So I think this is the last one. Yeah, this is the last one. So this center picture that you're seeing, this is the tree that people attribute to the location of where the Buddha actually attained enlightenment. This is, I believe, in northeastern India. He was born in what we call Nepal but I think this particular tree is actually in India because that line didn't exist between India and Nepal at the time. We attribute this tree as the location of where the Buddha attained enlightenment, but attaining enlightenment, it isn't a light switch that's either on or off. It's a gradual process. It's a gradual progression. But as the Buddha spent six years to attain enlightenment, a Buddha coming into the world is a significant event so they attribute to where he actually attained enlightenment as being this tree. But in reality, he attained enlightenment over many, many lifetimes. And during his last life, it took him six years to attain enlightenment. But in reality, he was working towards that enlightenment over multiple lifetimes. So we attribute this tree to where he attained enlightenment because when he emerged from the forest enlightened, he actually came to this tree and he spent seven weeks at this tree. He knew his mind was enlightened. He knew that he had attained this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, but he didn't think the world was ready to understand the teachings that he had to deliver. So he contemplated for seven weeks. Do I go teach people what I have to teach them? Or do I go back to the royal family? You know, what do I do here? So he contemplated for seven weeks over this decision. Well, we know what he ultimately decided to do, which is share his teachings. But the reason why he contemplated at this tree for so long is because what he had to share with the world was so different than what people were currently doing. Because there were people in this region of the world that were claiming that they were enlightened, but what they were doing was so far away, in some cases, from what the Buddha knew was the path to enlightenment. As you heard me talk in a previous class, people were hanging themselves upside down from trees. They were laying on beds of nails. They were driving metal objects into their skin and piercing their skin. They were starving themselves down to skin and bones. They were doing all these practices to disparage the physical body, thinking that if they put the physical body into excruciating pain, that the mind would overcome that pain somehow. And miraculously attain enlightenment. But the Buddhist path didn't include any of that stuff. His path was all about learning, discovering the truth, acquiring wisdom, making wise decisions, understanding this natural law of karma, of cause and effect, and action and result, the result of our decisions. And his teachings were so different than others, he didn't think that the world was ready to truly understand. So he spent seven weeks at this tree contemplating whether or not to actually teach. And of course he did go on to teach, but we attribute the location of his enlightenment to this tree so that people can go there and kind of visit the place that we consider that he attained enlightenment. But in reality, he attained enlightenment over many lifetimes, and particularly six years of his last life. This leaf that you're seeing on the screen This is the leaf from that tree. This leaf is also a symbol of enlightenment. As you see, the shape of the leaf is an interesting, unique shape, but then it's got that little hair almost. It's a part of the leaf, it's a leafy material, but it's this little thin piece of material that kind of comes off of the leaf, very much like those symbols of enlightenment that you see where it's a circle and then it moves back and forth and then it goes up towards the sky. So that little hair on the leaf is essentially that same kind of thing. So we will attribute this leaf and this tree as being significant to the Buddha's enlightenment. And there's actually places here in Thailand and other places across the world where they've gone to this tree and they've been given a piece of the tree and they've taken that tree back to a place, like a temple here in Thailand, and they planted it, and they've grown a a version of this tree at the actual temple. So it's kind of like a child of this tree. So whenever you see this leaf, or whenever you see this tree, or whenever you see this leaf in artwork, or some people will put it on the temple wall or things like that, It's a reminder of the location of where the Buddha attained enlightenment, but once again, it's also a reminder of your potential to attain enlightenment. So this is a leaf that you'll see which is very common. And not only these images that I've shared with you so far, but you'll see lots of other images as well. The ones that I've shared with you in today's class are the most common ones. And I describe these in chapter 23 in detail so that you can understand a bit more about these, and it will help you as you traverse through Buddhist communities and Buddhist cultures. When you see these different images, you'll understand what they mean. So let's see what questions you guys have uh, based on this one.
2: I was wondering, David, with many religions, there are certain holy sites, and is this tree, would we consider it a holy site in Buddhism, or is it more of just, we look at it as simply a tree that symbolizes what you've been talking about?
1: Yes. This is considered what we would think of as a holy site. And there's four sites that the Buddha gave during his lifetime. You'll see it in this book series, The Words of the Buddha, where he says that after his death, if people would like to come on a pilgrimage to certain sites to remember him, he gave us four sites. One is the place of his birth. Uh, One is the place of his enlightenment, which is this tree one is the location of his first discourse the place where he gave the first four noble truths discourse and then the fourth one is the place of his death and he described these four places as what we would probably consider a holy site so his birthplace the place of his enlightenment the place of his first discourse and the place of his death and people pilgrimage to these places today Here in Thailand and across the world, people gather together and they go on these journeys with a group of people to go visit these sites. And you'll see all kinds of people who are interested in going to see these places. And you can see them on YouTube that people from China and Japan and Thailand and all kinds of places will come to these locations in order to pay respect to the Buddha for his
2: teachings. Would that be a worthwhile goal for us to have to eventually, by the end of our life, visit some of these sites?
1: You could, but don't make it an attachment because if you never actually get a chance to go to those places and you die, then you're going to be reborn. So if you have the opportunity, if you have the ability, sure, you should go visit, but don't allow it to be a craving, desire, attachment to do so. The Buddha did share in his teachings that if anybody were to die on their way to one of these sites, that they would be reborn in heaven as part of their rebirth. And you'll see that when we get into further part of these books. As I'm sharing them, you'll see his teachings about these four sites, but he also shares about if anyone should happen to die in their journey to one of these sites, they would uh, attain a rebirth in heaven. But yeah, if you would like to go see these sites, I think it would be a wonderful thing to do, but just don't hold it as a craving. Just maybe potentially go visit, but it's not required of you. I would imagine that the Buddha would be more interested in you attaining enlightenment to learn and practice his teachings rather than hold on to a craving to go see one of these sites. I
2: suppose what's most important is what we're doing on a daily basis in our daily lives.
1: Exactly. He even talks about one of the best ways to respect him as a teacher is to actually learn and practice his teachings. He talks about that as being the primary thing throughout his teachings. Let's of to Miranda now. Hello,
2: David. Um, if you said it, I missed it entirely. Uh,
0: the name of that tree is the Bodhi tree?
1: people call it a bodhi tree the latin name is religious vodialis or something like that i have it in the book i have the scientific name but people will typically refer to it as a bodhi tree b-o-d-h-i bodhi tree but there's a a more formal name for it that people will refer to it and it's in a place called bodhi gaia is the place where it's located But if you did a Google search for the location of the Buddha's enlightenment, you'll get a proliferation of these pictures, but as well as links of tour groups that will actually, you'll be able to tour and go visit these places. I have a friend who is uh, the president of the temple in Washington, DC. And every year he takes a tour group to these sites, all four sites and some other sites. So if you were really interested and going to see these sites and traveling with a ordained practitioner and traveling with somebody who actually knows these sites really well because he's not only visited them countless times but he's written books about them as well he has some published books about them i could connect you up with him and you could get involved in one of his tours he usually takes a couple bus loads of people every year to go see these sites around october november time frame
3: okay thank you sir
1: mm-hmm.
2: that's getting mercy in yeah.
3: uh teacher David, please could you just explain to me um again possibly um getting born from the animal realm into the human realm how does that actually take place if animals d- don't have access to teachings i'm still a bit sure um, unsure of how that how that actually happens
1: Sure. So there's the, the natural law of gamma, which just like the natural law of gravity, it just functions. It just exists. You, know, you can't turn off gravity. Uh, you can't turn it on. It affects all of us, whether we know about the natural law of gravity or not. You know, When we were two, three, four years old, the natural law of gravity was unknown to us, but it still affected us. And just like the natural law of gravity, the natural law of gamma functions the same way that it's there and you can't turn it on, you can't turn it off, whether you know about it or you don't know about it, it still affects you. So for example, a lion or a cheetah who is actively killing, they're still being affected by that killing. Even though they, they're not aware of the natural law of gamma, they have no ability to learn the teachings and understand the teachings, they're still being affected by it. And oftentimes this is why Lions get killed. They get killed by hyenas or they get killed by other lions. They get killed by elephants or rhinoceroses. Uh, Lions go around killing a lot, so they oftentimes end up getting killed too. They have a very short lifespan. But when a being is dead or when it dies, if there's craving in the mind, this yearning, this longing, this mental longing with a strong eagerness, there's going to be rebirth. Craving, desire, attachment is the fuel that causes rebirth. Every single animal is going to have craving, desire, attachment. They can't attain enlightenment in an animal existence. So animals are going to have to be reborn in order to attain enlightenment. And once you're in the animal realm, because it's so difficult in the animal realm, it's very difficult to make it your way into the human realm but because of the, the ignorance, because of the unknowing of true reality. So this is why the Buddha calls rebirth in the animal realm like being stuck in a prison, that it's very difficult to get out. But eventually, beings come out of the animal realm. So if you think about animals like an elephant, for example, an elephant is really well known to have compassion. An elephant is known to have clarity of mind. An elephant is known to have a concentration and, and good recall of memory. This is because elephants, in terms of the, the animal world, are the closest to the human rebirth, as opposed to something like a lion that goes around killing all the time. Elephants don't really kill very much. They can kill. They will kill. They have killed. But not all of them do. So even though in the animal realm, they're unable to actively learn the teachings they can be reborn into other realms. Even human beings who don't have access to these teachings, these natural laws of existence, they're not dependent on somebody learning the teachings to be able to accomplish the goal. This natural law of Gamma is happening regardless of whether you know the teachings or not. So even people who are Muslim or Christian or Uh, no faith background whatsoever, they're still actually being constantly reborn based on the natural law of gama, whether they learn these teachings or not. There's no dependency on having to learn these teachings in order for this natural law to affect us. So this description that the Buddha is giving us about the teachings and explaining what's going on in the world, he's just explaining the truth of what's going on in the world. You don't need to understand that truth in order to be experiencing it. For example, you didn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. You didn't understand the universal truth of impermanence before learning the Buddhist teachings, but you were still experiencing the universal truth of impermanence throughout your entire life. You just weren't aware of it. So the same thing with the natural law of gamma. We've all been experiencing it in this birth, in our previous births as well, but we just weren't aware of it. Once you learn the Buddhist teachings, and you're aware of these natural laws, you're aware of these natural laws of existence, now you can actually make wise decisions to improve the condition of the mind, improve the condition of your life, and actually get to enlightenment. When you don't know these teachings, you don't have that ability to actively move towards enlightenment. But you're still being affected by all these natural laws, even though you're not actively studying the teachings.
2: Are there any things, David, that we can do to assist individuals in the animal realm to have a human rebirth, even if simply letting them live out their karma?
1: Letting them live out their karma, not euthanizing animals, is really important. There's a lot of euthanization of animals these days because oftentimes when they're pets in our home and they're sick, the human being experiences grave suffering and discontentedness in their mind when they see their animals that are sick. So we end up euthanizing them. But that's an intentional death. We're actually killing the animal. We shouldn't do that. Let them live out their full life. Other things you can do is you can help them with food. Uh, So here in Thailand, it's really common like there's lots of street dogs here. There's cats on the street, even wild animals. Ties take very good care of the animals in order to ensure that they have the food that they need. Because essentially what animals do is they go around craving food, craving sex, craving play. They will kill, they will sleep, these kind of things. So what the ties feel is that if we just kind of give them food and make sure that they're able to eat food, that that's one less craving that they have to have. They don't have to fight for their food. They don't have to kill for their food. They don't have to do those kind of things and it kind of helps the temperament of the animals to calm down where they can then get to a better rebirth in their next life. So you'll see in temples here in Thailand, lots of stray dogs and stray cats you'll see lakes that are like full of fish and turtles because nobody kills the animals that are around the temples. And the animals find out that, oh, I can go to the temple and that's where lots of food is. So you'll see a lot of animals congregating around temples here in Thailand, and you'll see the people will give them food as a way of helping them so they don't have to fight for their food or kill for their food.
2: We've been looking at the various symbols, and I believe you mentioned that People oftentimes will have tattoos of the symbols and I was wondering if you, for anyone who may be enthusiastic about the teachings and considering getting a tattoo, I wonder if you could kind of walk us through things to think about in regards to the teachings and potentially getting a tattoo to represent that
1: If somebody would like to get a tattoo it's their their choice uh, their you know have the free will to be able to do that and get whatever tattoo they feel like they would like to get that's completely their free will but since you're asking me if it was me i wouldn't get a tattoo because when we start decorating the body it starts to reinforce the self it doesn't mean if you've gotten a tattoo that you're somehow bad or you've done something unwholesome that's not what i'm saying at all but if you continue to decorate the physical body, then we start to identify with this physical body as being the self and it starts to reinforce the personal existence view. So for somebody like you who's asking me the question, I will share like, if it was me, I wouldn't get a tattoo at all. And if you notice, I didn't put that anywhere in the book, and I would only share that with somebody who asked the question. Because I wouldn't stop somebody from getting a tattoo. I wouldn't even say it was unwholesome to get a tattoo. I would just say that in getting a tattoo, it's reinforcing in the mind this personal existence view. And what you're trying to do as part of this path is stop associating with this physical body as being who you are as a person. And when we start putting artwork or jewelry or things like this on the physical body, it starts to make the mind feel that this physical body is the self. But aside from that, if you're going to get a tattoo, you can get any kind of tattoo you'd like, whether it's the symbol of the Na or the symbol of the leaves. Some people put those in different parts of their body. I would suggest putting them in respectful locations if you're going to put them somewhere in your body. Some people will get images of the Buddha himself, like They'll try to replicate what they think the face of the Buddha looks like. There's people here in Thailand that really look down on that kind of stuff because putting the face of the Buddha on your body is, for some people, they consider it to be disrespectful. Uh, And then, of course, there's other people that think it's one of the most respectful things you could do. And there's people who, when they put the face of the Buddha on their body, they will sometimes put it on their leg or their ankle or their foot. And here in Thailand, the lower part of your body, it's more dirty. It's considered to be most disrespectful. So here in Thailand, if you're sitting on the floor with a group of people, you wouldn't point your feet out towards other people. Because if you can imagine walking around in flip-flops or sandals, or a lot of people in olden days walked around with no shoes at all, like the Buddha, he didn't wear any shoes. So the feet got very, very dirty. So it's kind of customary before you go into a house that you wash your feet before you go inside to clean off any dirt. So if you go inside and now you point your feet towards people when you're sitting down, it's considered to be disrespectful in a culture like Thailand. So putting a tattoo of the Buddha on your ankle or your foot or your leg, for some people, they consider it highly disrespectful to do something like this. So if you're gonna choose to get a tattoo, Uh, You'll have to think about, you know, arm, shoulder, respectful places where, like, you know, if you put it on your breast or you put it near your private area or your inner leg or your foot or things like this, this can potentially be disrespectful. And that's why for me, I have never gotten a tattoo. I've often thought about getting a tattoo. Uh, I've considered it not a Buddhist tattoo, but I've thought about getting tattoos of like my son and his birthday or something like that on the body. But I've decided not to do that. So I'm not against tattoos. I don't think tattoos are bad. I don't think they're good or bad or wholesome or unwholesome. But I just think that you've got to take into consideration this personal existence view that you're trying to get rid of. And you also have to take into consideration, if you are going to get a tattoo, where to put it and what type and ensure that you're doing it respectfully.
2: Thank you, David. Let's go to Miranda now. Um, I was kind of like going to follow up James' question here would it be more acceptable if someone was trying to remind themselves about teaching and wanted to put a tattoo on the body somewhere um, perhaps like a henna tattoo would that be more acceptable because that's not
0: permanent and after a time would fade away
1: there's really in my view I don't think about it as being acceptable or unacceptable, because if we think of it that way, then that means somebody has to create the rule who's creating the rule of, you know, what's acceptable and unacceptable. So that's why I started out after James said, this is like everybody's got free will to do whatever they, they choose. And then I would say that yes, Hannah tattoos are, are not permanent, but ink tattoos aren't permanent either. They fade, they change all that kind of stuff. Right? Uh, so, I suggest you guys do whatever you feel is in your best interest, because if you have a craving to get a tattoo, there's two ways to eliminate the craving. One is to actively eliminate it through training the mind. The other one is just get the tattoo and that eliminates the craving. So that's why I wouldn't tell somebody to not get a tattoo necessarily, because if their mind is just craving one so badly, then maybe they might choose to get one. My wife's got two tattoos. Uh, She's got one on her hip, she's got a butterfly, and she's got on her inner arm written in Thai, it says uh, Buddha Wajana, which means the words of the Buddha. And she sees on her inner arm every time she's doing something because she does massage as a career. So she's always looking at her hands when she's doing massage. She looks down and she sees Buddha Wajana on her inner arm Every day, multiple times a day, the words of the Buddha, the words of the Buddha, the words of the Buddha, the words of the Buddha. So if that's something that you feel is helpful to have a little Dhamma wheel on your inner wrist or on top of your hand or anywhere else on your body that you would like to do that, totally up to you. I would teach you regardless. I wouldn't look at it as a good thing or as a bad thing. Honestly, I think... Artwork on the body is oftentimes very beautiful, very ornate. I mean, the artists that do this work, absolutely phenomenal. It takes an enormous amount of skill to be able to do that. And that's where each person just has to choose for themselves what they would like. You know, If I see somebody with a tattoo of a Buddha on their foot, I don't think of them as good or bad or indifferent. It's just their personal choice. But just be aware that if you roam about Buddhist communities, That there's other people who will look at Buddhist tattoos below the waist as being disrespectful. And you may encounter somebody who becomes disgruntled when they see a Buddhist tattoo below the waist. And that may or may not change your opinion of whether you would or wouldn't get it. But I would just say, you know, think about it, you know, in relationship to personal existence view and all the other teachings. And... If you would like to get a tattoo go for it and send me a picture you know if you'd like um (laughs) but
2: uh, i I have no interest in getting a tattoo um it doesn't sound like a good way to spend a couple of hours getting poked with a needle over and over again but perhaps henna that'll last for a week or so
1: yeah this can be this can be a way to eliminate a craving if somebody has a craving to get a tattoo is to get a a Hannah tattoo, but it's important because some people have very strong opinions about tattoos, and there's people who's even students of mine who have tattoos, plenty of tattoos, Um, so that's why it's important that people understand that it's not wholesome, it's not unwholesome, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just one of those things that you should consider, and you'll find lots of people in Buddhist communities have tattoos, and it's all about your mind it's all about your practice and what you've got going on so if you were to get a tattoo it's not for somebody else it's not to please somebody else it's it's your own practice and you decide whether it's something you'd like to do or or not do but since james asked the question uh, for me my personal decision is not to get any tattoos but i don't have an opinion of whether somebody else should or shouldn't because it's their own personal choice, their own free will.
2: Okay. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. So what you say about the symbols we've been studying, they can be very useful as tools, whether that be as a potential tattoo, or a bracelet, or perhaps a magnet on the fridge representing a symbol. But what's most important, I suppose, is that we use them as tools rather than turning them into attachments.
1: Right. If you know the teachings, these symbols and this imagery can help you in your practice and support your practice. When I was living in America, I don't know how much you guys know about my background, but I had Thai massage spas and I had a Thai massage school and I had everything decorated in Thai art. Uh, so I imported a lot of things from Thailand back to America, you know, wood sculptures and artwork and. Statues of the Buddha and all these different things and I had all this stuff decked out in our massage centers and our school and every day, you know I would go to work pretty much and I would see all this artwork and I would see these statues and I would see all these things and It reminded me of the teachings of the Buddha during that time I wasn't really actively studying and I wasn't actively teaching the way that I am now I knew very little about the Buddhist teachings compared to what I've come to understand now. But during that time when I was bringing in and drawing in all this artwork and creating this environment around me that was very Buddhist and very Thai, it did really support even the little bit that I did know about the teachings. It really supported me in furthering to understand the teachings. And these are things that can be helpful. Like if you've ever seen Johnny, I don't know if Johnny's here today, he usually comes on Saturdays. Um, But I know Johnny, when him and Roberta log in, they have a big artwork of the Buddha above their sofa, in their family room, in their living room. Uh, This can be a great kind of thing to have in your home. But what you've got to do is ensure that the mind's not attached to it. That if this painting was damaged, if it was lost, if it was stolen, if there was a flood or a fire, you know how would your mind feel about that? So as long as you're deciding to bring these things in as a way to support and encourage your practice, and you're not getting attached to them, whether it's a tattoo or a bracelet or an artwork, that's the whole goal is unraveling all this craving, desire, attachment to the point where you don't need these things. But as you get started, you might decide these things are helpful to remind you and your children and others in your home that, yeah, like, let's work on developing our practice and ensure we're practicing on an ongoing, regular basis.
2: Thank you, David. That seems to be all that we have for now. Well, I just noticed, actually, that Gloria raised her hand just now, so let's go to her.
1: Sure.
3: So I just want to say that I um, always feel very attracted to those tattoos. I don't have any tattoos. I never thought about them the way you explained today It uh, to, today that they can be kind of uh, a way of craving to look uh, for the looks to look better, um, which is a good way for me to another way to think about them. Um, but I just was speaking about uh, tattoos. I don't have any, but I just also feel that is, uh, they are um, artwork
1: and they are beautiful I agree wonderful artwork I've seen on people's bodies and I have such admiration for the artists who do that and for the people who think up these tattoos because sometimes it's the client who goes in with an idea to the artist and then the artist kind of brings it to life such amazing technology that we have these days that has evolved over multiple generations. So if you've gotten a tattoo in the past or you currently have tattoos, great, that's wonderful. Uh, If you're thinking about getting a tattoo and you either decide to get one or not get one, great, that's wonderful. It all comes down to personal choice and that's why there should be no judgment Whatsoever in these teachings. So if you encounter someone who has tattoos, no judgment. They're not good, they're not bad, they're not wholesome or unwholesome. It's just, hey, person decided to get tattoos. Beautiful. You know, I've seen outstanding artwork on people's bodies. And there's nothing about the choice to get a tattoo that makes somebody either wholesome or unwholesome. It's just individuals' free choice. Um, You'll see lots of ordained practitioners who have tattoos and they'll either have gotten them prior to becoming ordained or some of them will get them why they are ordained. There's even Buddhist monks who do tattoos. The Buddha didn't teach them to give tattoos and suggested that they shouldn't give tattoos as part of their practice. But even today, you'll see people in Thailand that are monks that are uh, there's a temple in Bangkok, I think it is that there's a, a leader of that temple who's really good at doing tattoos and people will come to his temple and get tattoos from him and his monks. So this is a topic where people can have certain personal opinions and certain views about it. And I would suggest people just put all that stuff to the side and just do whatever you feel is best for you. If you'd like a, or a somewhat less impermanent tattoo, which is ink, then go for it. If you would like to get a surely impermanent tattoo like a henna or something like that then go for it this life is about just enjoying your life right it's not about following some rules following some pre-perceived conditions of what one person thinks is right or another person thinks is wrong so that's why whenever i even share my personal opinion on something like tattoos i preface it with you know do whatever you feel is best it's your own free will because as a teacher I wouldn't want somebody to think that my choice is what everybody should do, that we all should have our own free will choice, and I've made my free will choices in this life, you make your free will choices in this life, and don't necessarily think that my free will choices are the best free will choices for you. So for me, I have loving kindness and compassion for all beings, whether they have tattoos or don't have tattoos, whether they give tattoos or don't give tattoos. To me, it's just one of those things of life. Even I've seen monks smoking cigarettes. I've heard of monks that have used drugs. And when the Thai people find that out, they usually ask them to leave and no longer be ordained. But when I hear those things, I don't feel angry. I don't feel frustrated. I don't feel irritated. I don't look down on those people or anything like that. I just think of it as like, okay, well, that's their choice. That's their life. That's their free will choice. And if there's an ordained practitioner who chooses to use drugs, then they're going to face the results of those decisions. And one of the results is that Thai people will ask them to leave and unordain. And then whatever happens to them from there is what happens to them from there. It's their own free will choice. And that's where we really have to be sure that we consider as part of any decision, whether it's tattoos or any other personal decision as part of our life, that each individual can make their own choice and that's the right choice for them. We shouldn't try to dictate what one person should or shouldn't do, but just allow everybody to make their own free will choices and train our mind to be comfortable with letting everyone have their own free will choice.
2: Thank you, David, and that indeed seems to be all that we have for today.
1: Okay, so our next chapter, which is actually the last official chapter in the book for next Sunday, is chapter 24. There's some more content after chapter 24, but this is the last official chapter. Chapter 24 is titled Misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's Teachings, because as you guys have heard me talk at different times about impermanence and how my goal is to root the teachings that I share to what the Buddha actually taught during his lifetime, over the course of 2,500 years, impermanence has affected the Buddha's teachings. Even today, here in Thailand, not every temple and not every person practices the teachings in the way that the Buddha actually taught them during his lifetime. As you have access to these teachings and all the resources that I provide, Not everybody has access to these teachings in the way that you have access to these teachings. There's people even here in Thailand who practice rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. You can go into some of these temples in Thailand and you'll see somebody kneeling at the statue of a Buddha and you ask them, what are they doing? And they'll say, I'm praying to the Buddha. And you know that that's not possible based on the Buddhist teachings. That's not the way that any of this works. But these teachings haven't completely permeated throughout the world. Even in a Buddhist country like Thailand, these teachings aren't permeating in the way that you're learning them throughout the world. So I use this chapter at the end of the book, now that people have learned the Buddhist teachings throughout this program and throughout this book, to help you see some of the misunderstandings. Not only here in Thailand, not only in the Theravada tradition, but also in other traditions as well. I really focus this chapter mostly on misunderstandings within the Theravada tradition, because this is the tradition that focuses on maintaining the teachings in as close of a form that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha as possible. But even in this tradition, there are temples, there's ordained practitioners, there's practitioners who don't have access to these teachings in the same way that you do. And when you go in and out of these various temples, you're going to see them doing things that are opposite of what the Buddha taught. And again, we don't look down on those people. We don't think they're bad or anything like that. It's just that they haven't had access to the teachings in the same way as you. So now that I've shared these teachings in this program and in this book, I end the book with helping you understand some of these misunderstandings, So that when you go in and out of different environments and different communities, that you'll understand, oh, they're practicing that because that's a folk tradition that was handed down and integrated into Buddhism, but it's actually not part of the Buddhist teachings. So I'm helping you to see more clearly what is the path to enlightenment by showing you some of the misunderstandings. So we're going to talk about that next week on Sunday. This Wednesday... We're going to be doing loving-kindness meditation in class together. And then here in a matter of just a few weeks, we'll be moving into the frequently asked questions section, which is the last additional content of the program and of this book. But then there's one extra class that I've added to the end of our schedule, which is called the five hindrances. Now that you've learned all the Buddhist teachings for a big dose of it in this program, the way that we're going to end the program is talking about the five things that are hindrances and that will block you or obstacles from the actual attainment of enlightenment. So we're going to talk about those as the last part of this program. So we've got another you know, three or so classes, and then we're going to restart again on September 1st. So if you have already blocked out of your plans to continue learning and go through this program again, you can continue to learn and go through this program again, or you can also join the Saturday class, which is the Polycanon and English study group. Some students will do both at the same time. Some students might only have time to do one or the other. So you can decide that as you go. We just restarted the Polycanon and English study group yesterday but in reality, you can join that program at any time. There's really no real starting point and ending point for that program. So as you continue to finish out the rest of this book and finish out this program, there's a few more kind of miscellaneous things that we're going to cover as a way of kind of rounding out your education and making sure that you really are clearly seeing this path more and more clearly. And there's one point here in another week or so that I'm actually going to be talking about how to determine if you've attained enlightenment. That's one of the last things in this book is how do you know if you've actually attained enlightenment? So we're going to be talking about that as well. So we've got some kind of miscellaneous content to cover as we finish up this program. And as always, anytime you have questions, just let me know either in class, in the Facebook group, by sending a private message or scheduling a Personal guidance session to get some of your questions answered. So thank you all for your questions and your diligent study. As you need help, feel free to reach out and I'll be here to help you. So have a lovely rest of your day. I'll see you in a future class.
0: Sawadikha. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward Buddha.